Hey, it's Bill Simmons from The Ringer. Wanted to tell you about our newest podcast that is exclusive to Spotify. It is called The Hottest Take. These are short podcasts. These are going to be like seven to nine minutes, multiple times per week. It's one take. Sweet potatoes are bullshit. You're going to get takes like that. You're going to take about sports. If Cliff Kingsbury looked like Brad Childress, he would never work again. Pop culture, you're going to hear from me. Home Alone is not a Christmas movie. Ludicrous. This is an interesting <laughs> take because the name of the show is the hottest thing, not the worst take. You're going to hear from Ryan Rossillo, Mallory Rubin, Jason Concepcion, Chris Ryan, Sean Fennessy, Shay Serrano, my buddy House, and many more Ringer staffers and friends of the Ringer family, some celebrities. It's going to be exclusive on Spotify, multiple times per week, coming September 16th from The Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about the Oscars. And also It Chapter 2. Later in the show, I will be having a conversation with the director, Andy Mischetti. He is the director of It Chapter 2. And then later, I'll be talking to our pal, Jason Concepcion, about... What worked, maybe what didn't work about It Chapter 2, which is the biggest movie of the weekend. But this being the Oscar show, we are, of course, talking about movies that may or may not contend for Oscars. Just before we get, began recording, we were discussing the Venice Film Festival's winner of The Golden Lion. And that movie, of course, Amanda, is called Joker. Now, Joker is, uh, for those of you who've been sleeping under a rock, Todd Phillips's, I guess you just described it aptly as a remake of Taxi Driver, but with The Joker. We think that's what that movie is going to be. Neither you nor I have seen it. Correct. And until we see it, I think it's going to be difficult for us to weigh in specifically on whether it's a problematic movie, whether it's a wonderful movie. I don't know. I'll say just candidly, I'm looking forward to it, though I think we've cited on this show a handful of times that we're not looking forward to the discourse around the movie. That We don't have to look for it. It's already here. It's here. It's here. There and I, I'm not really a part of it. And I, I said that I would not be a part of it. I continue to not be, in part because, as you said, we haven't seen it. Yes, we're only citing it here because the idea of Joker entering the Oscar race, I think, is is significant. I noted this over the weekend, but just four of the previous 40 Golden Lion winners have gone on to become Best Picture nominees. Two of those four have come in the past two years. Those movies are The Shape of Water and Roma, both of which were, if not major favorites, significant contenders. So it's possible that as as these things evolve, maybe Venice is evolving into perhaps a bellwether for the Academy. It's, it's very hard to say because in addition to Joker being acknowledged, they also acknowledged Roman Polanski's new film, uh, An Officer and a Spy, which won the Silver Lion. And it's notable that the Academy expelled Roman Polanski last year from the Academy. So I, do you think that a festival like Venice, which you and I discussed a couple of weeks ago as we previewed this season, has the chance to significant, significantly influence where we're going this season? I think that's a complicated question in the sense that you and I are having this conversation now and a bunch of people lost their minds on Twitter this weekend about Joker winning the Golden Lion. I, you know, I think that happened on Saturday afternoon, uh, PST, and you just watched all the tweets rolling of everyone being like, oh, shit, the Oscar <laughs> race has changed. I'm like, fam, it is early September. Calm down. Yeah. But, you know, that is the nature of the Oscar race at this point. It's like a bunch of people just like hitting that retweet button and being like, game changer. <laughs> so I guess it's a game changer. Yeah. You know, I also saw there was instant hand wringing of 
ringing of being like, uh, Venice is responding to the discourse and they are saying, no, you will not shame us. <laughs> we will not be politically correct, which is like, they're not at all. It's Venice. It's just like a bunch of people taking boats around and being like, we're having a nice international time. Like, I promise you that Lucretia Martel, who is the president of the jury this year, like did not read your tweets and doesn't care. So... To the extent that all of this, <laughs> why are you laughing? I'm just, la- you're just, you're really feeling it right now. And it's great. I just like. Lucretia Martel was just chilling in a boat somewhere. That's what you're saying. She, <laughs> she was, was in a gondola. I hope she had a great time. Rewatching Hangover 3. She's a Three. director. She <laughs> deserves it. I hope she got some time like on a plaza somewhere with an aperitif because that's what you got to do when you go to Venice, okay? It's not read stupid people's tweets about like what Joker reflects about the 21st century masculinity or whatever. She doesn't care. They don't care. So in that sense, no. But in the sense that we are in a prison of our own making and all of the Oscar discourse is now because of people reacting and just kind of shouting each other across the void. I I mean, I just did a monologue about it, I guess. And this is the Oscar show. You're participating. Of course you're participating. We We say we're not going to and then we do. I think you, you definitely put your finger on something very smart, though, which is that the reactionary nature of certain movies, or at least the way they're perceived to be reactionary, invariably influences the races. You know, the Green Book conversation happened in part because there was at least the expectation that older members of the Academy did not want to be told what they could or could not like. Now, Joker is not exactly the same as Green Book. Even though we haven't seen Joker, I feel pretty safe in my assumption that they don't have the same posture, let's say. But I do think that there is a chance that a movie like this could sneak its way in because of what you're saying, because there is this sort of like, don't tell me what kind of a movie I'm allowed to like and not like. I'm not totally sure. Todd Phillips is not necessarily historically known as a awards filmmaker. And Joaquin Phoenix is a bit of a circuitous personality in the world. You know, he's not the kind of person who I think is going to go to 100 after parties and kiss babies to get his nomination, despite the fact that he's understood to be master of his craft, et cetera, et cetera. We'll have to just wait and see. You know, we're, we're not far away from seeing this movie. The only thing I would say, flip side of that, is that it would be so Oscars for them to finally recognize, like, the superhero genre with this movie that is a remake of and a nod to all the 70s movies that these, these Academy Jokers grew up on. I don't think that that would be a fair recognition of what the superhero genre is in the industry, and I don't think that would be a fair recognition of this movie, which I have not even seen. But you can see, you can see them doing it. The one thing I'll say is, though, there's one thing working forward and one thing working against it. The one thing working forward is the sort of like elevated '70s thing that you're mentioning, which gives it perhaps a measure of credibility in some people's minds. The flip side is this character has already been celebrated by the Academy. Heath Ledger already won for playing this character. So we know that the Academy is maybe more open to the idea of a chaos agent in its mix. You know what I'm saying? Yes. But the Academy recognizes, like, the King of England in a character, like, every three years. So that doesn't really matter. Okay. Uh, The one thing that we can say about Joker is that it's clear that he is this week's winner of is he running? Because Joker is running. <laughs> it is clear that the Joker is here to stay for the Oscars conversation. So we'll get into him more. I, I suspect that we'll do a little bit of a deep dive on this show so in October. I want to ask you about the article, the, because it's very clearly titled Joker. 
And calling, I mean, I understand that the Joker is the character. Yeah. But I think they're also trying to do something by not having him be the Joker. It's a it's a wordplay because also he's a Joker. Because we're all Jokers. Right. So The collective Joker in all of us. But I guess what I'm asking you, I want to set some intention for our Oscar season. Are we going to call him the Joker or are we just going to call him Joker? Can we just see the movie and find out first? Because okay. well, what if he's not I the just, canonical Joker? detail, okay? <laughs> It's it's a it, your editor brain is working well right. on this Monday morning. Thank you. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see because okay. it's completely plausible that this is not operating in the traditional Batman mythology, and so thus it's just a reference to how all leaders and and men with power are the jokers of the right. world. Listen, I am just trying to respect the film and the filmmakers and engage with the text. People don't think that I'm going to do that with the movie, but I am. Well, we appreciate your yeah, your candor, anytime. openness, and insight. Sure. Let's talk about the big picture's big picture, and that is the Toronto International Film Festival reactions. This is a problem in the big picture. Do you know what I mean? So, a bunch of films debuted this week. Neither you nor I were there. We're doing a little bit of tea leaf reading, and the thing to consider here is that I don't think that necessarily what critics think about movies that premiere at TIFF matters significantly to the Oscars. They matter significantly to the way that the movies are received in the world because these are the people with the loudest bullhorn at the moment. But if you look back at the history of, especially the recent history of TIFF, movies like Green Book winning the Audience Award, those movies were not rapturously received by critics. Some critics liked them. And in fact, you and I, upon first viewing, kind of like that movie. But the this will be an interesting test case because some movies that I saw Telluride premiered there, but for the most part, there's a bunch of new stuff that took place in this first weekend of TIFF. The, the one that stuck out to me the most by far was the reaction to Jojo Rabbit, which mm-hmm. is Taika Waititi's new movie. What did you make of the way that the, um, I would say that the ranks were a bit split on this one? I did not see them split as so much as people trying to, I guess people are not trying that hard to couch their uh, negative reaction to it. Yeah, so let's, I, I love that. Let's discuss how people who want to like something entering it then negotiate the fact that they did not like it publicly. Well, there there was a group of people who wanted to like it in the sense that Taika Waititi is a director that a lot of people like, and you're trying to keep the festival narrative going, and also, frankly, probably want to be invited back. And then I, I don't really want to get into the whole embargo kerfuffle of— the, We're skipping that. No, thanks. Um, you know, do your job as best you can. It's a privilege to do it. Exactly. Uh, but— there were those people who were trying to keep an open mind about it. And then there are like the enfant terribles of Twitter who are just like, no. And, you know, making a scene their own way. Everybody's playing their part. But it seems, putting those two together and kind of triangulating, seems like maybe it doesn't totally come together. Yeah, there seemed to be at best a mixed response. And I think you're right that, that underneath that mixedness, there was something sour and frustrated and disappointed going on in a lot of people's reactions. And it's probably because, in part, this movie, which is has been deemed a quote-unquote anti-hate satire, is a little bit tricky to pull off. I saw a lot of Wes Anderson uh, comparisons, a lot of Grand Budapest Hotel comparisons. There is something whimsical and, I don't know, maybe a, maybe a bit feet about it in a way. You know, there's something kind of like delicate in the, in the way that Tyke is trying to tell this story, that if it doesn't work, it's really not going to work and it's a bit of a risk. And so, you know, months and months ago, a movie like this was tabbed for Oscars. To me, it's possible. And and I did read a handful of the sort of awards watchers, Scott Feinberg in particular, the reporter noted that while critics didn't necessarily love the movie, the audience did. Mm. And I wonder if this is the kind of movie that can thrive with audiences 
but not with critics, which, you know, we mentioned Green Book previously, that that happens. And, and Three Billboards won the Toronto uh, Audience Award the year before that. Exactly. It does happen. To me, it just seems like we knew this movie was a bit of a high wire act. I mean, the, the trailer is available and it does have that jokey, kind of lighthearted vibe with Nazis running around and Hitler is a main character in it. So that either works or it doesn't. And we don't actually get that many movies where it's like, well, we tried something and it just did not work. And that happens. That's valid. And I'm curious to see. I'm curious to see it again. We haven't seen it. I am, too. It comes out October 18th. We'll be talking about it a lot more on this show. I I found it to be an interesting flashpoint, though, for the exact thing that you identified, which is that all weekend people are rapturously receiving marriage story and waves and my name is Dolomite. And there's so much positivity coming out of these festivals. And we talked about that high last week that you inevitably have when you experience something for the first time, quote unquote. And for someone to come out and say this didn't work usually means it really didn't work for them. So I'll keep a close watch on Jojo Rabbit. A couple of other films that premiered there. Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. We got confirmation that Tom Hanks is a supporting actor in this category and that this is the story of Tom Junot's character coming to grips with some personal issues. So it is, as you mentioned last week, a journalist movie. Otherwise, though, it did get a lot of love, and it got a lot of appreciation from Ariel Heller, the director of the film, um, who last year made Can You Ever Forgive Me, and is considered to be a very unflashy but very empathetic filmmaker. So I think it feels safe to say Tom Hanks will be in our life for the next six months. That seems correct. I'd like to thank everyone who, all of the kind Canadians who lived up to this stereotype and wrote to let us know that Mr. Rogers was a big deal in Canada. We apologize. Um, Well, I I just, everyone was so nice. There was no one being like, you idiot. How did you not know that? So thank all of you. That's the kind of discourse that we're looking for. (laughs) Should we move to Canada? (laughs) Apparently also PBS was available Mm -hmm. in Canada as well. So Mr. Rogers is a phenomenon there, which means that it certainly has some audience award appeal. I don't know. Reading through the tea leaves, everyone just, it seemed like a warm hug of a movie. And I how far does that take you in an era where everyone just needs to scream at each other about Joker for an entire weekend? On the one hand, nice can mean green book. On the other hand, nice can mean, it's nice, but I don't have to think about it ever again. Yeah. And so we'll, we'll have to wait and see about that one too. I'm going to go through a couple of others before we get to a big one. Knives Out, Ryan Johnson's Agatha Christie yes! update. Thank you, Ryan Johnson! <laughs> uh, I, I would say that this one actually was rapturously received. Yeah. And one of the reasons why it was is because I don't think there's any energy around awards on this movie. It's just, will this be the fun thriller mystery romp that we were hoping for? Sounds like it is. Mm-hmm. C- cannot wait. I basically, I just read some tweets that were like, this is hilarious. I've read nothing else. I don't want to know anything. Please don't tweet at me. I just, I need to have this pure experience. It's what I'm living for in 2019. <laughs> Thank you so much. The one thing I did note that I thought was interesting was a handful of people said, don't trust the trailer. This movie's better than the trailer. And I, you and I liked the trailer for that movie. In yes. fact, we rewatched the trailer recently together. That's true. Though we rewatched it to show a, a third person in our lives who is also a huge Agatha Christie fan, and she was like, "Eh." She said, "Eh." She, turns out she's more of a Miss Marple. I'm a Hercule Poirot. Daniel Craig is like clearly doing Hercule Poirot. Anyway, N- I, nice to see a fun mainstream commercial movie with movie stars do well at a festival like this. I mentioned My Name is Dolomite earlier. Eddie Murphy also rapturously received. I think that that movie probably is not likely to compete if you similarly read the tea leaves, though it seems like a win for Netflix in terms of a quality film. I did see a lot of people use the phrase rewatchable about this movie. I will watch this movie two and three and four times. 
which is an interesting thing yeah. to integrate into award season because it's a Netflix movie. And we'll get to sort of Netflix is standing here in a little in a, in a minute. But, you know, I, I'm I guess I'm happy that it's good. I, I don't maybe Eddie Murphy is a best actor contender. But the, the, as we noted last week, the. The field is so crowded right now in, the, in that category. That's true. I just saw a tremendous amount of, it was like, Eddie Murphy in caps, and then, and I, and you know, and, and I had a nice time. And that seems to me like singling out a Best Picture nomination. And I do think the actor and actor races are a bit easier to sift out sooner. They kind of, they do get knighted early in the season. So you would see it. I mean, people would love to have Eddie Murphy around. The only addendum to that would be that the other thing I saw in all caps was Wesley Snipes. Wesley Snipes is back, which I, I am excited about. And maybe we can find a way to appreciate Wesley Sounds Snipes great. a little deeper on this show. Parasite Fever. Yeah. It seemed like this is the most popular movie at the festival. Mm-hmm. And I don't yet know what to think about that. Because as we tut-tut A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood or Jojo Rabbit, and we praise Parasite at the top of our lungs about what a phenomenon it is and how exciting it is, I do feel like we've seen this movie before. Not the movie Parasite, but the this is the festival darling of all festival darlings, and it could get left at the altar at the Oscars. We're going to have to wait and see. I'm I'm excited for everyone to see it. I'm excited by the prospect of a movie like this being a hit. Mm-hmm. But now, it's just an expectations game. The whole thing is ex- yeah. like a thousand people getting turned away at a Toronto International Film Festival screening of a South Korean director's thriller is is weird. You know, it it, it creates a burden that maybe a movie like this can't bear. I think that's true. I think to expect it to win Best Picture is, as you said, it's the expectations are too high. But right now, that's also really exciting, right? That we live in this moment, you know, there's all the hand-wringing about Disney and these garbage franchise movies and things that no one goes to the theaters. It is nice that there's still a world in which, and it's very small and often frustrating because everyone's just like yelling at each other all the time, but then everybody wants to go see Parasite. That that's great. That is like a business model if it's not the business model. It's probably also a Oscar. I think Parasite probably will be nominated if I, I, I hope so. seen today. I hope so. Just because you have to recognize that frenzy. Winning is a different game. There's a little bit of recent precedent, obviously, with movies like Amor and Roma from filmmakers right. who are understood to be among the very best of their generation getting the the love that they deserve, if not the win that they deserve. Mm-hmm. So we'll keep a close eye on Parasite. You know, a couple of other things that, that played again, I thought, for the most part, Waves was very, very, very warmly received. Likewise, Marriage Story, there was a lot of rapturous Adam Driver conversation, a lot of talk about Laura Dern. You know, to the people out there who are tweeting about Marriage Story, stop giving away, like, the most exciting parts of it. What, what's going on with that? I, Twitter I etiquette is, is fucking crazy. I've, I've honestly stopped reading Twitter until I see all of these movies because— it's not worth it. I, I gave you a big speech this week about how I'm just, I'm shuttering myself off. But at this point, there's nothing that the, anyone is going to tell me that is going to do anything other than take away from my experience. Yeah. Movies. And it's great that you got to go to a festival and talk about the movies. And it's, I'm sure it's a boost for your career. And talk amongst friends, connect, share about films. That's what it's about. But like, most people haven't seen it. Calm down. Yeah, I, I'll be sincere. I really try hard not to give things yeah. away that spoil the movie when talking about this stuff because I know that that can be really obnoxious. So to anybody out there who's in, in, the, in the biz, just, just stop giving away significant highlights. Yeah. I'm not even talking about spoilers. I'm just talking about things that happen in movies that people want to experience for the first time. Let's go to Stock Up, Stock Down. If it goes bust, you can make 10 to 1, even 20 to 1 return, and it's already slowly going bust. 
I'll tell you one movie that was really, 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 really rapturously received, and that movie is Hustlers. Hustlers, of course, Lorraine Scafaria's adaptation of Jessica Presler's story of the stripper robbers circa 2008 in New York. The piece originally ran in New York Magazine. And while I think the movie is clearly going to be a hit and it's clearly going to be a sort of flashpoint culturally, the story is J-Lo. We've got probably two more episodes about J-Lo coming up this week on this I, show. I I have a lifetime of episodes about J-Lo in my heart, so let's just talk about it. Later this week, we'll do a bit of a career arc dissection of J-Lo, the actress. But J-Lo, the movie star slash Academy Awards contender, is an interesting thing to arrive on our doorstep. I just want to put this image in your head which is Alex Rodriguez managing J-Lo's Oscar campaign and just being this cinematographer. Are you familiar with the body of work that A-Rod has already created in tribute to Jennifer Lopez? The thing is, I, I know all about their Instagram presence. I know all about his, his, his odes the, to her. Have you watched the birthday video, the 10-minute birthday video no. in which he presents her with a Porsche for her 50th birthday? <laughs> I haven't seen it. And she's like, I haven't driven a car in 25 years. Sounds like a and scene out of Hustlers. It, it's it's 10 minutes. He's practicing the arrival the first time around. It's so good. It's really, and then they just drive around for two minutes. Here's a counterpoint. Bobby, what do we know about Alex Rodriguez when the spotlight is on him in a big moment? Uh, he doesn't perform. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So this is dangerous territory. This is, he just has to be standing next to her. That's like ultimately, there's no pressure on him except just to stand there. And he's been very good at it so far. And it also... J-Lo and A-Rod on the Oscar circuit is amazing. That's money in the bank. People want to see that. We're going to get a little bit more into J-Lo in just a minute. But before we do, the thing about Stock Up, Stock Down is uh, there is some down. J-Lo is up. The mm-hmm. down is, I, I think, maybe Netflix and Amazon. I, it does feel like the trend of the festivals defying these major streamers and the films that they bring to the festivals is starting to die down. But it, somebody noticed over the weekend, a very intrepid uh, reporter pointed out that Scotiabank Cineplex, which is a 14-screen huge movie theater that shows a lot of films during TIFF, was not showing any Netflix films or any Amazon films and a lot of other smaller films, which is very unusual. It's one of the signature spaces where they show movies at this festival. And it was officially because this Cineplex did not want streaming movies playing on their screens, even at a festival setting. And I think that that is still sort of the canary in the coal mine of this problem. And I I wonder if even as we get closer with The Irishman and My Name is Dolomite and and Marriage Story and all of these Netflix movies that want to contend, there's still a dug-in part of the film industry complex that is not yet fully warmed to the idea of turning themselves over to these streaming companies. What do you think about the fact that, you know, Amazon and Netflix still can't get into these spaces? Well, it's just one theater in Toronto. I mean, respect to this particular theater chain for managing its business. And, you know, the last time that we talked about this, I believe when the the Irishman and all of the Netflix screening plans, um, the release plans in theaters were announced, someone wrote to us and we were like, it doesn't actually really matter that much. It's just kind of bluster. And someone wrote to us and was like, well, I subscribe to AMC, um, the subscription plan. And I, if I'm going to give them a certain amount of money each month, then I would like to be able to see all of these movies. It doesn't, like, the bang for my buck is not there, which is true. And it's a good point. And I think that there is, like, a a credibility thing. But for theaters to be able to say, we're still worth your money, we offer everything, um, 
Netflix not being there is still, I th- I still think that the theaters have a bigger problem than Netflix does because people can still go see Netflix. You know, it's like these movies didn't show at one theater chain at the Toronto Film Festival. So like what, 2,000 people had to go somewhere else to see it? I mean, how many people are at the festival? I think you're right. I think that this trend is starting to die and there's starting to be a level of acceptance happening here. I don't know if we're yet fully there. And so... Whether that means Marriage Story can win Best Picture or not is is significant well, to the conversation. I don't think it's Marriage Story. I think it's the two popes. Mm, well, right. We got a lot of which two popes conversation have, which coming up. I still up. have not seen, but anyway, I was I was putting together a little bit of like, what are the best things I've seen so far? Now that I've seen probably eighty percent of the slate, yeah. And uh, I did I did put the two popes on on that. Yeah, that's list. fine. Okay. I, I have a, a friend who shall not be ma- named who just keeps like texting me facts about the two popes because he thinks it's very funny. It seems very charming. They eat pizza, which is literally also a scene from Green Book, but that works. <laughs> um, you know, I like I too like pizza. But you can just see, I think that it's that kind of movie that will get Netflix over the hurdle. It's not some artistic innovation. Um, but Pe- they have it this year. The thing is, pizza is very good. It really is. It's exceptional food. Exceptionally good. Uh, let's go to the big race. Well, Mama, look at me now. I'm a star. We mentioned J-Lo and Hustlers. I believe that J-Lo should be Best Supporting Actress. If she runs in Best Actress, I think it's going to be a challenging it's a tough road to hoe, is what I'll say. Okay. Constance Wu was the lead of Hustlers, without question. Okay. That being said, this could be a tricky category for J-Lo. There's a couple of heavy hitters. There's a couple of its time people in the mix here. A lot of movies that we haven't seen here, some we have seen. The big contenders to me right now are Annette Benning and The Report, mm-hmm. which I have seen, which is not Annette Benning's best performance by a long shot, but it is a transformation into a real person. And she has never won an Oscar. And she has never won. And she has been, she is in that same Glenn Close position of yeah. multiple nominations over the years, beloved by her colleagues, works the system, is, has kind of an old Hollywood glamour about her. And, you know, she's playing Diane Feinstein as a person of, of great resolve and historical importance. <sighs> and so she'll it's not, have— It's not the moment for that. But anyway— She'll have a big chance. Okay. Laura Dern in Marriage Story. I'm sure you saw all of the hosannas for her after this weekend as well. I did, but I just had to scroll fast until I until I see the movie. I can't participate in this conversation. Stop spoiling my most anticipated movie of the year. Thank you. One could argue that Laura Dern is actually playing a real person. That person will go unnamed for, for the moment, but it is clearly modeled on a real person. Wow. Whether or not she's a hero is up for debate. We've talked a lot about Margot Robbie, and the one movie that has been shuttled aside as we discuss all this film festival stuff, is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It was the only damn movie we could talk about on this show for two months. And now it's a, it's all quiet on the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood front. It's, they're just resting. They're That's just fine. Resting. They're resting. You know, you why fight with 80 other movies when you had the two months in the spotlight and then you can come back and be like, hey, remember when Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie were in a Quentin Tarantino movie that everyone loved and went to the movie theater to see? Not that, that everyone was dope. loved, but a lot of people did. You and I did. I, I certainly did. I know you did. I think a lot of Academy members are going to love it, too. And I think she's also playing a real person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's something unmistakable there. Also playing a real person is uh, Zhao Shushen, who plays Lulu Wang's grandmother in yes. The Farewell. Nai nai. And this is another performance that we've seen figures like this, older actresses that we're not as familiar with, get recognized for historical roles or or roles of... Um, significance that we don't see coming. And that's just a lot of real people in the mix here. If we go even further, Kate Ranabalf, 
in Ford versus Ferrari, I would say, has unfortunately the traditional wife role in the movie, which is a little bit underwritten, and they try to do the best they can with her, and she's a very good actress. Fans of Outlander will know her work, but if this feels not, like the cutoff. If for they me. didn't give it to Claire Foy for uh, First Man, then then no one should be nominated for the traditional wife role ever again. I would say that she does not have the the deep reserves of pain and and right. sadness and and anger that that Claire Foy had in that film. A couple of other ones that I just don't think are going to happen. Okay, Jennifer Hudson in Cats. Okay, Jennifer Hudson has one in this category mm-hmm. for singing a big historical Broadway number. I was really good. It was great. And yeah. she'll be doing the exact same thing when she sings Memories. Do you remember when Jake Gyllenhaal hosted SNL and did I and I Am Telling You? I do, yeah. That was also great. We stand Jake here at the okay. big picture. Uh, Nicole Kidman, The Goldfinch. Doesn't seem like that's happening. Not a strong reception for The Goldfinch at the Toronto <laughs> International Film Festival. I've not seen a movie get dunked on this hard in a while. We'll be talking about that movie later on the show. I can't believe I got it. I'm, I haven't even seen it, and I know I'm going to wind up defending the Goldfinch. This is going to be exciting times. Maggie Smith in Downton Abbey. Love Maggie Smith. Why not? Uh, well, there are a lot of other people in this category. Fair enough. And she's also, how many Emmys has she won, and she never shows up for those? Oh, I respect that so much. I do, too. I so great. Nothing but respect for Maggie Smith, but also, if she wasn't even going to come to the Emmys, is she going to campaign in order to win an Oscar for Downton Abbey? You should just do a Dowager Countess podcast. Okay. Isn't that every podcast that I do? (laughs) Uh, Meryl Streep in the laundromat. We're going to see that movie later this month. Maybe? It's Meryl Streep? Meryl Streep in a bucket hat. (laughs) Respect Meryl Streep in a bucket hat. I think the big unknown here is Little Women Mm -hmm. because there are a lot of of actresses, a lot of well-known actresses. Meryl Streep, Laura Dern, Emma Watson, Florence Pugh. I think it's pretty safe to say that Saoirse Ronan will be the lead. Everybody else seems kind of fair game. How do you know that? As um, someone who doesn't know what happens in Little Women. You, guess what? I don't. <laughs> I've just been called onto the carpet for okay. my complete lack of knowledge. You know, there are a lot of other potential nominees here that we'll have to wait and see. Anne Hathaway in Dark Waters, uh, Scarlett Johansson and Jojo Rabbit, Judy Dench in Cats. Why not? You, you love oh, yeah. to see it. You know, I see Ruth Negga and Ad Astra on this list. Let me just say, one, loved Ad Astra deeply. Ruth Negga does not have enough screen time to warrant this nomination. Okay. Uh, and, you know, we don't know what Anna Paquin's doing in The Irishman. We don't know really what uh, Margot Robbie's doing in Bombshell. You know, is Margot Robbie going to cancel herself out in this category while she cancels other people? We'll see. Right. Any other people that you think have a shot here on this long list that we're checking out? Well, you have Scarlett Johansson on here for JoJo Rabbit, which seems unlikely now. But I'm just curious about ScarJo running against herself, possibly, in Marriage for, for, Story. You mean for Endgame? Yeah, sure. I mean, maybe. Like, honestly, who knows? <laughs> There's a tremendous amount of Scarlett Johansson on screen. There's also a tremendous amount of Scarlett Johansson talking. Uh, one is better than the other, historically. Yeah. You know, we've been kicking around the idea of the uncancelables here at The Ringer. And uh, I, I'm just fascinated by Scarlett Johansson's exploits. There's a phenomenal conversation about this on the Tea Time podcast. I would encourage you to check that out. <laughs> uh, ScarJo is is very free with her feelings, and we'll see if that's held against her as yeah. she competes in Best Supporting Actress for Endgame and Best Supporting Actress for Jojo Rabbit and Best Actress for Marriage Story. I'll just say it's safe to assume she's wonderful in Marriage Story, right. and in theory, she'll be challenging in that category over any of these others. Any parting thoughts before we uh, explore J-Lo more deeply later this week? 
No, just let me see the movies. Let us all see the movies. That's that's where I am. I'm We're excited. We're so close. We're, We're so, so close. close. And I'm just I'm just fighting to keep a positive, yeah, movies attitude. And like it's everyone's chipping away every day. But if you like me have not seen movies, just protect your heart a little bit longer. We'll get there. Think of it this way. In the coming weeks, we get Hustlers and then we get Ad Astra and then we get the laundromat. So we're in good shape. Things have cleared up. The dark waters are clearing up for us. Mm -hmm. We're starting to be able to see movies, which is all we really cared about on this show. Let's now go to my conversation with Andy Mischetti. Delighted to be rejoined by Andy. Andy, thank you for being here. Thank you, Sean. Andy, last time you were here, I knew that there was going to be an it, and I don't think the world knew that there was going to be an it chapter two. And you were a little bit cagey when we talked about it. Did you know that this movie was going to happen, or did you still have to hope against hope that it could happen? I knew I had, uh, I knew we had hide it in my mind, you know, the second part of the story and the conclusion. I knew there was uh, a second part uh, in, in my mind and in everyone's uh, desires. But it wasn't until um, the release of the first one that the studio actually gave the green light for the second part. And we, uh, like, uh, you know, eventually started working on it. How much work had you done mentally on it before you got that green light? You know, I assume there was no script, but did you have a design? Did you have an expectation of how to solve some of the pro- no, no the things from the first book? Well, things happen so fast, you know, that uh, you can't, like, possibly fathom the, the whole of the story. Even though you, you have a, like, a, you know, a slight notion of the things that you will project to the second one. In my case, uh, in this, in this case, I, I left open certain windows. Uh, it was a bit of, you know, kicking the ball forward to catch it on later and, and figure out how you're going to catch it. The whole thing with, uh, Beverly being deadlighted, uh, Beverly having visions of what the future is, uh, was a big, uh, you know, a window that I opened uh, for for later uh, using. Uh, so yeah, um, I didn't know exactly what how that would pay off, but I decided to like throw the ball so we could catch it on the on the second two years later, and that's how it happened. You know that you know throwing forward of the ball really really helped us. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, of drama. You see, Beverly, like the only reason that, that the losers stay in town, this is not in the book. It's a little loser in the, in the book. The way, the reason why the losers actually stay is they're like, they have nothing to, you know, to lose there. You know, they, they, they could like turn around and go back. So in the book, they rely more on the, on those, uh, feelings of, um, of need to close sometimes. For me, it wasn't strong enough for a film. Uh, uh, format. You know, we need something more concrete, more concise. And the fact that in their bit, in, in, uh, product of, of that deadlight, Beverly has had, you know, has been having these visions of death and suffering, uh, which is actually the losers dying. And we use the death of, uh, Stanley. Spoiler alert. I think a lot of the world has seen this movie at this point, so we're not too worried. <laughs> um, to to tie into that idea, um, so now the losers have a stronger reason to stay in town, and f- uh, so they are more like reluctant uh, heroes in that in that sense. 
They have to stay, but they don't want to, but they have to. Otherwise, they will die. Well, did you have that same feeling? Did you feel like you had to stay, like you had to do the second film? Was there any part of you that thought maybe I shouldn't do that? There was nothing reluctant in my participation in the second, the first or the second one. Actually, the, you know, the success of the the first movie, uh, if anything, uh, really stimulated me uh, uh, into the second one. Um, Yeah, it's a lot, very, very excited to, when the green light happened, it was like, yeah. Now let's do it with more money. <laughs> so I, I wanted to ask you about that because I feel yeah. like the first film caught some people by surprise. Maybe people who didn't know your name, who didn't think that adapting it could work mm-hmm. well. The first film is a little bit smaller in scale and I presume in budget. Mm-hmm. Was there something that you wanted to do in one that you couldn't make happen, but by getting this green light and obviously a bigger canvas, you were able to lean into and two? Yeah, of course, I had budget limitations. Of, in the first one, you know, you can't you can't say it was like low budget, especially for a horror movie. Um, but you know, dealing with such a huge story, the book is like twelve hundred pages. It's full, so full of characters and and and, and rich in events. And uh, of course, you, I sort of like run out of money and there have to be like creative decisions that that keep you in the box but i knew what i was dealing with and so we yeah we sort of did a movie of course i, I you know of course I, I i left some parts that i did want uh to put in the movie that meant a lot in my opinion in the story like the clubhouse uh which is this environment that is so important in the bonding of the characters so i put it in the second one so it's a it's a running joke within the studio, like the clubs. Oh, so you're going to do the clubhouse? Huh? Yes, I'm going to do the clubhouse. Uh, <laughs> Is that something you were fighting for and wanting couldn't make happen? Or? Yeah, it was a bit of uh, you know, cut, uh, I had to cut it a bit for budget reasons, but also for narrative uh, reasons. Um, I, I we just couldn't make it work in the in in, in the in the in the in the sequence of events because you know when you when you turn this huge literary narrative into something that is film uh you have to tighten everything tighten everything and make one event after the other make it consequential and sort of like you know lean the 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 pass of time passage of time it's everything happens more in a bit of a a real time uh so the clubhouse clubhouse i couldn't like make work and when when we did when we noticed that you know what budget we were we were dealing with we didn't make any more efforts to actually put it in the first one, uh, so that was a, a bit of a you know uh, of a bummer. But I brought it back in the in the second one. Why was that so important to you, the clubhouse? Uh, it was just like it's like a treehouse. It's where it's a physical space where this you know this love story uh, actually happens. You know, it's the bonding. Maybe you see like the 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 place in the in chapter one where this happens. Um, is in the first place is the quarry where, where where Beverly joins the kids and you see them all together. The rock fight and the, and later the rock fight when uh, with the inclusion of Mike. Um, but there was this space where you know it, uh, it the 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 book happens in in a long time. So and it's very fragmented and this, because it's memories, it's flashbacks basically. Uh, Stephen King did you know. Like this, basically fresco of a of a summer uh, in the in the lives of these characters, 
uh, I couldn't do that because we, we were, I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't like telling it in a, in a, in a two timeline, uh, fashion. So we had to tighten everything. And that's when I lost the, the clubhouse. Did you know going into two that you were going to have a two hour and 50 minute runtime that you were going to be able to make something this big and epic? No, I, th- I think, uh, my, my impression was that they would, they would grant me, you know, more, more budget and more resources. So I felt that I wouldn't like struggle so much or cut corners the way I did in the first one. Uh, I mean, all, all of this that I'm saying actually didn't, did not have a negative impact. You know, the budget, every, every time you face a limit, it just like turns you into like solving the problem in a creative way. And sometimes you find a solution that is better than, you know, whatever you were expecting. Did this have the adverse effect then? Did having a more money and more time no. hurt you? No, not at all. Because you, you know, your ambition grows with, with the budget. And of course, you know, well, my ambition is set by the, but the sc- the scope that this that this story has in my in my heart, you know, I I grew up with this with this book, and there is a scope that that it, that that the story implies that is that is is epic, you know, <laughs> it has an epic scale and it's like you know full, it's like fruitful with you know uh, environments and events and magic, um, so it's never enough. I'm very curious about King's involvement. Obviously, he cameos yeah. in in the film. His cameo is. Very clever for those of us who have maybe some thoughts about the endings to King's book and Bill's character as a novelist who maybe <laughs> struggles with endings. Um, I know that he really appreciated the first film and liked the first mm-hmm. film. Was it your idea to get him to appear in this movie? And then also, what did he? What feedback was he giving you about how to make Chapter Two? Well, that happened in two in two uh, punches, if you will. Like at first, uh, I you know after the first movie, we started like writing to each other, so. Our relationship became closer. Uh, you know, he got excited with the first movie and got curious about the second one. Uh, but not not from the writers, not not from the creators' perspective. He was more like a like weirdly like a fan, huh. <laughs> and that was what's what I what I love so much about it. Uh, his involvement in the second one. I w- I wanted to keep him in, in the loop in the loop with, with what we were doing. So I, I sent him a draft and. You know, asking him to basically like all the thoughts or ideas that you know that every every feedback of him would be like you know priceless for me, uh, and uh, so he came back very like humbly said, "Look, don't don't take this as a mandate of any sort, and just like giving you a little list of of things that I would li- like to see in the movie." Um, Did those things make it in? Uh, Paul Bunyan make it in? Yeah. Oh, that came from King. Paul Bunyan, yeah. And I had, I think, said I want to see that in the movie. In the draft, we we had a we had the second part of that scene already, which was uh, Bill Hader versus uh, versus Pennywise, who's standing on the on the on the shoulder of of giant Paul Bunyan. But and Stephen King said, "Oh, you know, I'd like to see Paul Bunyan chasing young Richie," and I said, "Yes, <laughs> I would like to see that too." <laughs> so that's the push that that I needed to like you know insert it in the. In the script, of course, when you make those decisions at some at, at certain point, you have to like sort of balance the other things because you, you're the a budget is being made as you're writing the script, as you're you know refining uh, uh, drafts and stuff. So um, the budget goes in over 
And then you have to, okay, we're going to, it's just like, you know, let's not be so over with the budget and visual effects. So let's, you know, let's make this scene, this, this other scene that was bigger, let's make it smaller. So it's a juggling act. So we can, I, get, I can get away with, with Paul Bunyan in all its glory. I have to maybe reduce the scene or just like lift it. Uh, it's constant, you know, juggling. You have to sort of pick your battles. I have a couple of interesting questions about King's relationship to the endings because, and since that's such a significant part of the character that he plays and his relationship to Bill in that sequence, obviously you've changed the ending somewhat yeah. here. And there's this understanding that King was going through a very strange time in his life some 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 challenging maybe some substance <laughs> issues when he was writing some of these books yeah. and the the ending of of this this saga is wild yeah 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 and maybe untranslatable to the screen absolutely um so i think you made some wise choices in changing it but what was his, what was his reaction to it did he have a real clear sense of even what this story was some 30 40 years after he wrote it i didn't i didn't dig too much on like on like that because i you know everybody knows like his uh, his struggles back then uh, probably it wasn't a struggle back then he was like you know you can see the 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 his work and it's uh so rich you know uh deep wide yeah really creative. wide creative so um I don't. I, I. I was. I'm not the one that that blames him for doing like that kind of ending. Uh, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Actually, the first time I read this this thing, it was crazy. But it wasn't. You know, it wasn't that. That's the story. You get engaged in a story that is, uh, you know, fascinating, and that's the ending. And you can't complain. He's been using like the same kind of. You know, his. Uh, you're, you're captivated by 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 the world and he's using everything just he just like becomes a little more you know expressionist at the end uh very much expressionist and he yeah. to he he tosses you to the other side you know that side that he implies and he's very cryptic about the macroverse the other side and then you're thrown into that and yeah it is crazy did you think that that was too much Perhaps mm-hmm. like fantasy, the way that he was telling that story. Exactly. Yeah, I want you know you, when you translate this like huge thing into into a film narrative, you have to um, this, make some choices. And one of my choices was to keep the perspective uh, in the two movies uh, perspective uh, from the character, you know, the point of view. In the first movie, is through the the characters as, when they are children. The second one is uh, characters. When they're adults, uh, the moment you start like dealing or being, you know, uh, seduced by the other side, you're you run the risk of making fantasy movie, uh, which I didn't want to. Uh, at some point, it sort of clashes a little bit with a with a human drama that you're telling. So I want I wanted to avoid the fantasy element of it, even though it's there. I'm not denying that it's there. It is an interdimensional evil who comes came millions of years ago, but yeah, I, I wanted to be very cautious about how to present it. And in the second movie, it's presented through through a vision induced by you know psych- psychoactive some substance um, called Maturin. Maturin is the name of the turtle. For those of you who didn't read the book, it's a nice no- nod to the to yeah. the mythical turtle from the, from the book. <laughs> yeah, so I wanted to keep it you know uh, hum- as human as possible. And, uh, yeah, keep them the, the other side of mystery. Bill Hader was here a few months ago. We talked a little bit about the production of the movie. Nah. He's great. He's nah. great. He's great in your movie. Hi, Sean. <laughs> Is that your Bill Hader? Yeah. 
<laughs> well, he 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 does an impression of me, so it's only fair. <laughs> <laughs> well, he mentioned to us that one, you had two things. One, a very clear vision for what you wanted and were very precise. But at the same time, you were willing to kind of try things in the moment that was oh, sure. different than what was on the page. Yeah. Which is, you know, we hear about that a lot in comedy. And obviously, Hater is very flexible when it comes to that sort of thing. Yeah. But for a big, epic story mm-hmm. like this, you mm-hmm. don't, I don't hear about that as much from filmmakers. Yeah. Um, there's several, you know, layers of that. I don't have a long, extensive, like, career in film, but I started, like, doing films like 10 years ago with Mama or nine years ago. Um, and one of the things that I, that I really learned is to, uh, to be open to what's, you know, the elements are bringing on the, on the day. You know, I, I used to be, I'm a storyboarder by, by nature. So for me, you know, it's very important to like design every single shot and plan everything that the characters are doing in the shot. And I still do storyboards and every morning I show up with my, you know, little storyboards, but I'm not like imposing that on, on anyone. I just want to, to have like me to have a notion of what I, what I like to see. And if what, what's, you know, but then comes the blocking in the morning, you have, you know, six adult actors, uh, six characters. And no matter how much you, you rehearsed or how much you talked about the characters separately and collective, there's a magic that happens on the set which is, this is the moment, this is it. <laughs> and on the blocking and the rehearsals, some ideas, you know, just like are generated. Magic, like uh, out of the combustion of all these things happens something that if you're like paying attention, you can, you can judge, you can decide if it's better than what you were thinking. So sometimes it's, you just like have to, okay, this actually, what, what, what this guy is like suggesting right now, it's actually, I, I hadn't thought of that. You know, every actor is thinking the scene from... from Was the, this guy just a grip or an actor? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, grips. <laughs> no, more, mostly actors, yeah. Grips also tell me ideas, but it's, it's like, you know, le- le- less, a little less. <laughs> who, who sees your storyboards every morning? Is it your DP and is that it? Or did I put it on a, I put it on a board uh, and it's for me and for the, for, for the DP and for the cameraman and for, especially for the AD. Mm. Um, and everyone who wants to get close to it, actors can should can see it if they want. Uh, I'm not like running to like rub the you know storyboard on the fa- on their faces. Um, my experience is that you know normally when you come up with, to an actor with a storyboard, they they immediately feel like you're like you know like chopping their wings <laughs> in, in some sort. Uh, especially when you when there's a when there's a, a camera you know a, a choreography involved. So I learned how to deal with that uh, by, you know, talking uh, in, in, during the blocking and the rehearsal, talking about what's the motivations of the actors, making sure that they, they trust me in what is, what's important for the scene. So it's not that easy. It's not like, okay, the camera will go around and you're going to like turn around and you're going to go to the back of the room and then the other guy is on the, the close-up and the other guy does, does a Kinski screw and suddenly he's a, he's on a, so I do want to get to that, but you have to approach it from a, from a different perspective. You can't approach an actor with a, with a technical scene unless it's like, you know, it's like a, you know, like camera storytelling masterpiece moment where he's like, this is more important than your performance, you know? That happens sometimes, <laughs> uh, but you have to balance this very well, especially with with adult actors. With kids, it's easier. 
you know, because kids want to want to play, you know, and yes. immediately they they understand things in a different way. They don't have so many concerns and about the the layers of of character and and arcs. Probably fewer ideas the kids than what the the adult actors. Should I be talk doing. to them the same way to the kids. I mean, they're 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 thirteen. They're not five, so mm-hmm. they, there's a rational you know exchange about what the. What, what the characters, uh, you know, they're thinking, they're, 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 they want what they want and the, the arcs and stuff. But once that, that talk is over, they just want to do it. You know? Did any other significant changes come out in the film because of this process that you're describing? Um, that maybe you hadn't planned for, but you arrived at something? There's a, there's a little deepening on the, on the Bill Dembro, uh, plot. All the all the scene with you know with Dean and him like ch- trying to to save his life in the in the funhouse came from a from from uh, a concern that Jimmy had, uh, James McAvoy, about his character not really having like uh, a, a you know a substantial payoff. Mm-hmm. Uh, considering that you know, and I, I I sort of agreed you know considering that uh, that Bill was a was a bit of a prominent character in the first one because he was the leader of the losers. Uh, he was like uh, Bill in this one was a little overlooked. So we agreed, you know, on, on, on that. And so we sat down. Uh, we were already in production when that happened. And we sat down with uh, uh, James, uh, me and Jason Fuchs, who was writing at, at that point. Um, and we figured this out. And uh, it's one of the best sequences in the movie. The thank whole, you. The whole the scares and the the composition and all the mirrors and all of that. Yeah, was... it really brings some tension to the to the you know to the second part of the second act. Um, I think um, it was like like James' uh, instinct was good, but then you know like the idea of the of the, of the fun house and everything just came from from me and uh, and Jace, Jason, and um, it's really brutal. You know, and it really turns the screws of, of, uh, of, of the tension in Bill's, uh, journey, which is a journey of guilt. So he don't know, not, not only finds that he finds in his memory, uh, that he is responsible for George's death because he wasn't there <laughs> to protect him. But now Pennywise is basically rubbing, like, like dragging him more into that trip guilt by recreating uh, the tragedy with a new kid. It's the kid that lives in his house now. Yeah, and there's a there's a brutality in that sequence that is pretty intense. And there's like a brutality in some of the themes of the movie, even more so than the first film. A lot of ideas about sexuality, abuse, body mm-hmm. horror, hypochondria, yeah. all of these things that people really are dealing with. Is there ever a time when you got us got the sense that maybe you were pushing it too far or that it was too mature or too complex? No. <laughs> Not at all, Sean. What are the powers that be? How do they interact with a movie like this that is that is trying to push it a little bit? Well, it's a very dark story. It's a it's a uh, a story that, like in in the book, it deals with with very profound te- themes as you know as as abuse, neglect, uh, to, like every every like a, a palette of like ho- horrible human behavior, like you know homophobia and hate and bigotry. And so I didn't want to like be shy about it. And especially now that we're like telling the story of the adults, uh, I felt like the, you know, the perspective should switch, even though like the tone of the movie lives in the same world with this, with the first one, as in, in terms of emotion and, and humor and horror. Um, 
there's a perspective that is a, you know a little more mature and it deals with you know the the ripple effects of of trauma uh and people trying to basically open that uh that closed box which is uh, a childhood trauma and facing it in, in order to you know basically to move on um yeah it had to I think it, it, it's that's that's what's specific and 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 unique about this story. You know, it's not a horror movie only. It's a story about characters facing up their 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 real life fears. What was the most challenging sequence to to shoot here? They were like you know very like def- different kind of challenges. Like technically, probably the blood scene with Jessica in the in the bathroom. Because it implied like the you know the execution uh, of a scene with a lot of technical like difficulties, uh, and uh, that scene is is divided in like three different sets, three or four different sets actually. I make... couldn't figure out how you did any of that. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> I just erased it from my mind after. after it's like, like w- the waiter effect. You know? <laughs> You're right. You have all this. These commands, and you you remember the twenty one things, and then you after you you deliver, you forgot. No, I you know it was like it was it was a lot of fun to design it, of course, uh, because you have this scene in your mind, and then you storyboard it, and then you say, okay, this shot and this shot and this shot are made on on stage one because that's what we need, but this shot definitely is shot on stage two, which is the same bathroom, but it's like built upside down, or like vertically. So the same the, that shot that transition shot where where Beverly like kicks the door and finds Ben being buried on the other side is 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 shot in a vertical uh, uh, set which is nothing like the set that is that gets flooded with uh, with blood. That is one of the most uh, technically challenging scenes. And then there were other scenes that were difficult just because of the of the drama, you know. Were like in, like more challenging emotionally, uh, stressing emotionally. Uh, probably the one in the in the quarry after they after all the losers, you know, just after their odyssey against uh, and the battle against Pennywise, they all gather in the quarry, and the, and it's uh, well for the people that are listening to this uh, that want don't want to spoil it, I won't say what happened, but uh, they just like have a very uh, intense emotional moment in the quarry, and uh, yeah, it was taxing. It was stressing from an emotion for the, for the actors' emotional point of view because they all had to get into that mood. Um, and also, like we're shooting in water, you know, and it wasn't like precisely uh, like a hot, a super like uh, you know warm day. So everybody was like, you know sort of like shivering <laughs> in a lake, inside a lake, and it was getting uh, late, so it started to be a little cool, and also like, you know, with the, with the dramatic intensity. That was probably, if you ask uh, the losers, uh, they will bring up, they will bring that one up. Are you still referring to them as the losers? Yeah. Uh, your, your cast? Well, they're losers in real life, man. <laughs> No, um, I love them. It's it's just you know, but loser doesn't have like a bad connotation anymore. Thanks to it, chapter one, you've redefined it. <laughs> um, can you just tell me a little bit about putting Peter Bogdanovich in as the uh, filmmaker? I, mm-hmm. I enjoyed that one. Yeah, yeah. Where did that come from? Why Peter? Well, I'm a big fan of, of of Peter and his movies, especially Paper Moon is one of my biggest. You know, f- I'm I'm just a big fan of Paper Moon. 
favorite movies of all time. And we have um we have a mutual friend, Axel Kuschewski, is a Argentinian producer and film, you know, buff. I, I've known Axel for a long time, and one day he said, uh, "I know Peter. You know, I, I we're like working on something together. Maybe you should guys meet because you're such a fan." Uh, so I was a little scared, of course, because it's you know such a hero and such an eminence, and uh, but we did it. We, so we went for dinner, and you know, in a very very quiet place. Uh, it was a, a Japanese restaurant on, on Sunset, and we had the best time. And uh, of course, I asked him everything. You re he regaled you with all the stories. Yeah, told do his Orson Welles. Did he do all that? Orson Welles, the cigar in the pocket of the of the robe. You know, Silver yeah. Shepherd, and uh, they all laughed. And uh, Paper Moon. You know, and he's like, you could go talk. You can go for hours with him. And precisely because of that, I kept like you know getting together with him. Um, and uh, one day he's like, "Well, you don't happen to have a role for an old director, do you?" Because <laughs> he's an actor too. He is. Peter, he's, he's an actor. actor. He's great. Uh, and I said, "You know what? Yes, I do have a a role for an old director, which is the role of the director <laughs> in in the set where where Bill Demro is writing a screenplay." And that's how it happened. And uh, the scene grew, grew, of course. When once he, he was a little, you know, a couple of lines, and then he grew more. And having him on set was just incredible. Uh, he came to Toronto. We didn't have to change his costume at all because that's how what I wanted. What I did was put him on a crane, so you see him like coming from the heavens, landing there, having like this little conversation, and then no, take me back to one, and he goes up again. I loved that. Um, it was fun. Are we going to see the six-hour supercut? Are you going to do that? Yeah, I over. I probably like uh, oversold that one. You know, I got some some pushback, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's. I think I, I. You know, it's a more of an expression of, des of desire than a, than a reality. But I think it, it, it will. I think it will happen. If you don't do yeah. it, yeah. someone's going to do it. Under yeah. That. Yeah, that's you know a great, what I mean? Yeah, that's a great thought, actually. So maybe someone's gonna do you it. could do it under a pseudonym and pretend somebody just uploaded it to YouTube, you know, just think about that. <laughs> well, it needs more work than that. You okay, know that I okay. want I want like no, I want support. I want like uh like financial support for it because okay. it's not just like putting the two movies together. It's actually it, it got it, it's it's editing the two movies back to back, but also like uh finding a place for all the deleted scenes uh that we're taking out for the only reason uh, they were taking out, it was for pacing and, mm -hmm. and length. Uh, so imagine we had a I had a four hours cut of chapter two, so that's a you know substantial amount of scenes that are like you know interesting character moments um, that I don't I think people won't won't like to to miss now that they know they were shot. <laughs> Well, so you're the only person that can do this now. <laughs> yeah, and I also, you know, because I get excited with these things, I want to shoot a couple of more scenes and see the movie the way it is now. I imagine like a, this big, big picture of what the whole story is and and make some, you know, some notes to myself and say, oh, you know what? This scene would be great and this scene. So I already have a couple of scenes of extra scenes the way that, uh, same way that that Spielberg did on Close Encounters, where he had a you know he had a chance actually to reshoot stuff after the movie was uh, yeah. was uh, was released. So let's bring it back. 
Are you? I read on the internet that you're in talks for two very big potential movies. One of them is the the Flash, and the other is Attack on Titan. So you're you're a big deal now. Last time you were here, you were a guy who had made Mama, scrappy, exciting <laughs> horror movie. Now you made this massive successful <laughs> franchise, and so yeah. you're much in demand. Uh-huh. One, are you eager to get away from the horror background on the next thing to show you can so do something else? Uh. I I have many interests. Like horror will will haunt me for the rest of my life. I think, and I I, th- I still think that there's like I have more to say in the genre, or I I I want to have fun exploring it. Um, uh, but I have other interests, you know. As you can see in the move in these two movies, I you know I lean towards comedy a lot. Could probably make a pretty fun the Flash movie. <laughs> So the Flash, we're talking. We're still in talks with with Warner Brothers and DC, and it's a you know it's a it's a great story. It's a great property. We have to. We it's a, it's a little too soon to to talk uh, you know publicly about about it. Okay. And, and what else? What what's what's your dream that you've always wanted to do that feels far away for you right now? Uh, Could be just genre. Doesn't have to be a property in particular. No. Oh no. Well, you know, I always find, fantasize about making a musical. So many people here say that. So many filmmakers. Well, but why don't? Is it just harder to get made? Um, it's not. But you know, Damien Chazelle made La La Land, and now it's harder to to come up with a. Oh, I'm going to do a musical because <laughs> you got to reach those heights, sir. <laughs> yeah, and also, also like he did it. He did it first, so it's like, uh, oh, so it's like La La Land with horror. No, no, it's not La La Land with horror. It's a you know, I start this from scratch. You always love musicals. Uh, no, so that's a, a bit of fantasy. We'll see where it lands. Because um, I love musicals and I happen to love horror too. But everything, like mainly anything that that makes you that that makes the audience uh, have feelings, <laughs> intense feelings. I love, and uh, you know, I like to be moved by by movies. And 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 you know, ironically. When I'm I'm watching it and it too, I I I can't scare myself because you know I know everything that is coming, but everything that is emotional, all the emotional beats, uh, they still get me. You know, still at the end of of it too, I I still get goosebumps on that shot, on that shot, which I'm not, I'm not gonna say what what it is, but it's Richie hugging another character. It's funny how it works, you know? It's like, um, you can't laugh because you know the joke, so it doesn't, like, get you, uh, uh, it doesn't surprise you. Same with jump scares or, you know, tension. But watching it with an audience is so refreshing, you know, and so gratifying because you finally see the, the effects of this thing that was, you know, created by, by your instincts uh, and, and the work with the writers and everything. Um but yeah, but the you know the feeling that you chase all your life, which is like you know maybe you were imprinted by movies as a kid. It certainly that, was that meant a lot for you, like made you feel things. Like what, for instance, Jaws. Jaws. Uh, did you have a strong emotional experience like growing up with of another course. movie? Of course. Oh, with a different movie than Jaws. Yeah, yeah, with a different one. Sure, I, I think I'm I'm probably not so dissimilar from you. I, mm-hmm. The Shining and uh, mm-hmm. and Star Wars and yeah. Indiana Jones and did you, you know, see the uh, Black Stallion? 
Oh, yes. Black Stallion is an incredible movie. Black Stallion definitely uh, left an imprint on me. And that's a beautiful, is that Caleb Deschanel has shot that one? Yeah. Yeah. That's true. a great one. Uh, never ending story mm-hmm. meant so much to me. And I, you know, those, these are not horror movies, but you know, the, the, I, I remember the feelings, uh, the emotions, you know, uh, the goosebumps and like, you know, when something goes straight to your heart. So that's something that I still like, still motivates me, whatever it is, horror or comedy or musical, whatever. I think that, that, that is something that you should, you should including your story uh, because um, it's just incredible to feel that magic, you know, from something that was made by hand, like handmade. Um, That's why I like movies. Well, let me ask you as a segue, we end every episode of the show by asking filmmakers, what's the last great thing they've seen? Mm -hmm. You've been traveling the world, (laughs) pitching your movie all over the place, but have you seen any movies recently? No, you know, that's, uh, well, it's tricky because uh, post-production is like 10 hours a day, like watching a screen and that takes you away from, from watching, uh, watching films for, uh, you know, uh, as a recreational uh, (laughs) activity. Um, so no, I didn't, I didn't stop watching, but I definitely watched, watched less. Is there, less. Have you seen anything that wowed you? Uh, I saw Midsummer not too long ago. From, it was great. Yeah. From one, uh, horror guy to the next, what did you make of that movie? It's great. It's like, I, I appreciate so much his, uh, his wi- like just twisted sense of humor. I see the humor there. Like, people can probably say that there is no humor in it, but every, He's he combines like on the on the on the most savage moments and br- brutal moments. There's always like a <laughs> you know there's a wink there that I that I appreciate and uh, yeah and the, you know I, I appreciate that he the build up you know how he builds up tension with um, in very uh, unorthodox ways you know uh, so he's a you know he's a he's very original in that sense um, Ari. Um, you know, Hereditary was same. I think it was like phenomenal. What else did I see lately? Um, I'm blank right now. I'll get you back. I'll get back to you like in three hours. No worries. I think uh, <laughs> Midsommar chapter two double feature would be fairly intense. So thank you for uh, coming back, Andy. Sean, thank you so much. And uh, let's see you soon. Thanks to Andy Mischetti. Let's go to my conversation with Jason Concepcion, breaking down It Chapter 2. Delighted to be rejoined by Jason Concepcion. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, did, did you see a movie, It Chapter 2, this weekend? I did, and and um, it was punishing. <laughs> well, that can be perceived in two different ways. Yeah. Let's start here. What did you think of It Chapter 1? I th- It was okay. You know, the jump scares, I thought, were the most effective part of the movie, I kind of like the stand by me kind of like coming of age vibe and the scares were decent. Um, I liked it much better than it chapter two, which carries the burden of having to land the arcs of these characters, not just as adults now, but also as children and seemingly has to do that sequentially in order. And it just, becomes a slog. Well, let me ask you this. Are, yeah. Do you have fealty to Stephen King's I love Stephen stories? King. You do. Love okay. Stephen King. So you've read it. 
I have. Was it many years ago? Was it recently? Many years ago, and I went back when It Chapter, when It One came out, I checked back in with it just to kind of see where it was and and recall the infamous scene in which all the characters as children have sex in the sewer. Yes. Um, Did you anticipate that scene, the child orgy coming in this movie? I didn't. I think the thing to remember about it is Stephen King was in the throes of a decades-long alcohol and drug addiction at the time he was writing this. This is towards the end. He cleaned up like late 80s, like around misery era. Um, But he was absolutely deep in it when he wrote it. He's famously said he couldn't remember writing Cujo at all. Um, So in that sense, you could look at it, a story about these kids who call themselves losers and then beat a demon clown and then return years later as adults to the same town to do it all again as really like an extended therapy metaphor. You know, it's like reframe your trauma. That's the way they beat the clown. Spoiler at the end um, is by essentially reframing his evil and his terrifyingness so that they then have the power and the ability to destroy him. And it's, and it's about taking that thing that hurts you and returning to the scene of the crime and conquering it and going on with your life. In that sense, that's kind of an interesting idea, but like a three hour extended metaphor for, for therapy with like a demon crab clown chasing, uh, Bill Hader around is not that it's just not that great a movie. On the one hand, I thought this movie is actually not weird enough because it's not as loyal to the core text. Because you know, in in the in the book, there is this mythical turtle that is significant to the storytelling, and some of the things that they lean on in this movie to kind of explain the mythology, the mythos of Pennywise, the dancing clown, I found to be a little bit rote, a little bit too sort of like obvious horror movie tropey. Yeah. And on the other hand, it is a movie that features a giant CGI crab clown fighting <laughs> Bill Hader, <laughs> which I don't think we can underestimate as an I, absolutely bizarre thing that happened at a mega blockbuster. I gotta say, it, I, I agree with you with not weird enough. And then the places where where the movie is strange kind of like undercut its ability to shock you. Example. I had a hard time, like, a lot of the themes of this movie deal with, like, disorientation and, like, they, they, these characters don't have their memories of childhood anymore. They're trying to regain them. So they don't quite know where they are. And, and the return to, to Derry is like a journey for discovery where they're all of a sudden recalling things that happened. Um, but, like, stuff that happens in the real world, seemingly there's, like, no consequences. You know, like, uh, uh, Richie kills a guy in, in the library. And no police... <laughs> No one wants to talk about it with them. Nothing. It, it, it is. It has the feel of a lot of Stephen King's stories in that respect, which is that almost every story kind of feels like a fever dream or right. maybe a kind of a hangover dream. Yeah. You know, where because of what you're saying, that a lot of those King classics were written in the depths of addiction. Yeah, there is a kind of like mania and anti logic happening right. in a lot of the stories. Inevitably, what happens though is when you make a movie and you literalize something on screen. Yeah, people say, this has to make sense. I have to understand why this happened. And I I think you made a really smart point, which is that one of the struggles of the movie, and this is a function of its two-hour and 49-minute runtime, which is quite long, (laughs) 
uh, is that it sequentializes those those problems. Yeah. And so inevitably you have to look at every single character and they all have to overcome their fears individually right. in order to overcome Pennywise. Mm-hmm. And that just means you get the same scene six times in a row. You get yeah. an adult person reflecting on a, a, a scary part of their childhood and then facing down a CGI monster but then there being no ramifications for whatever happened with the CGI monster showdown. In fact, it's a little hard to understand even what's happened. The rules are very obscure. How to defeat this clown is something I was trying to figure out up until the very end. Uh, Mike has uh, stayed in Derry and has just been researching the the issues there, the clown, and he comes up with this like Native American kind of like dream catcher box that they then have to... Uh, used to perform some kind of ritual where they're all together. And then that ends up not mattering in the slightest bit towards beating the clown. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of like weird uh, leaps of logic. And beating this clown is like an absolute mystery until the very end. And then it's, of course, that obvious thing of like, of of defeating your fears. You know, you said something earlier and I th- about Stephen King's, you know, just about the obviousness a lot of times of his plot. And I think that's the strength of Stephen King's writing is that he can take the dumbest premise. It's stupid premise. You know, cars come to life. Uh, rabid dog traps you in your car. Haunted house makes writer go crazy. Like travel back to in time and stop the JFK assassination through like a time portal in the back of a restaurant unexplained. He takes these really simple premises and absolutely devotes um, everything to committing to the realness of them. And I think that's hard to do on screen without it seeming kind of cheesy sometimes. And I think that's why maybe some of King's horror adaptations are really not in any way as scary as his books unless they're changed significantly. Yeah, so a couple of things about that. One, Adam Naiman on this show last week, I thought made the very smart observation that a lot of the King premises are not unlike that family guy bit in which uh, Stephen King appears and says, um, this lamp is evil. You got to trust me. It's an evil lamp. That's the bit. It's an evil lamp. And everything that he pitches could potentially be perceived as ridiculous or absurd or kind of thin. But by overcommitting to it, you buy into it and you get connected to it. You know, the other thing is we're a couple of guys approaching middle age and um, we read those books when we were young and we have a a sense memory, an emotional connection Mm -hmm. to a lot of King's work. And inevitably when you try to translate the wonders of your childhood, you get disappointed. (laughs) I think we've had that time and again, you know, you you obviously have committed so much time to Game of Thrones and understanding it. And these things often let us down. Then the other thing is the first film had a different kind of expectation. The It miniseries that aired on ABC back in the day, or maybe it was NBC, I can't recall, was beloved, but it's kind of tacky. Yeah, you look back at it, it scared the life out of me at the time, and I looked back at it recently, I was like, oh man, this is not scary. It's not scary. Yeah, it's yeah. not It's not even very good. Yeah. But the new film, the first chapter in the first film, is scrappy yeah. and creative, and it's got a pretty modest budget for a film of this size, and it went on to have this extraordinary success, the most successful R-rated mm-hmm. movie, I think, of all time. It's amazing. And the King revival is in, you know, full, full, full mode right now. And so I think even though there are some things in the first film that don't necessarily work, it doesn't have a lot of CGI in it. The scares are pretty effective. 
it's faithful enough to the text while also shedding some of the things that would be really hard to put on screen. And unfortunately, the, and I, I think it really did, it stood alone. You know, it, it felt like a standalone story because the writers and the director took the two parallel parts of that book and separated them. You know, so the first film is just all kids and mm-hmm. the second film is I don't know, 15 to 20% kids and 80% adults. Yeah. And inevitably you then get this comparison between the kids and the adults in the second film that is a little bit of a struggle. I wanted to know what you thought about the people that they brought in to be the adult characters. This is going to sound like, a, you know, as if I'm pandering, but I thought Bill Hader was by far and away the best. He's the best part. It was just like larceny the way he stole every scene he was in. Completely agree. And everyone else... The cast is good, but everyone else is like kind of a lifeless caricature of a type of character, you know, like the uh, anal retentive one who's uh, now does insurance. And then um, Bev, Ziggy, James Ziggy, Ransone, James, who we remember from The Wire. And then uh, Bev, Jessica Chastain, who's dealing with um, issues of abuse and trauma and that stem from her childhood. Mike, who's like the crazed loner who's just wants to solve this on and on. Um, and it's only Hater who like kind of breaks out and is able through his comedian character to kind of like comment on how absurd things are at the time, you know, whatever's going on. And he really injected a lot of life into every scene that he was in. And the rest of it is just kind of laid there blank, um, unimpressive which is unfortunate. You know, you wanted more from, there's that scene in the Chinese restaurant when they get together for the first time and they're all kind of like uh, regaling each other with memories that are kind of coming to the surface and laughing about things they did when they were kids. And it's so unimpressive. And it should be great. Like It's very pretty faithful to the book too. I feel is. like the book is has a sequence that is very similar to yeah. that one. And on the one hand... That should be the heart of the of that of it chapter two should be that connection, these characters back together, the the warmth they feel for each other, the memories they share, and that one kind of golden but also tragedy tinged summer, and just appreciating that. And it's feels kind of soap opery and not great enough. Did, were you distracted at all by the inequity amongst the cast because on the one hand you've got James McAvoy and Jessica Chastain who are huge stars huge stars and you've got Bill Hader who obviously we love he's in the Ringer Hall of Fame for myriad reasons but also is now as the star of Barry award nominated and considered to be like one of the most exciting creative people in Hollywood right now that's a really strong trio then you have the James Ransons of the world who's a a really good actor who's done a lot of good work on series television Mm -hmm. and independent film and then you have two other people. You've got Isaiah Mustafa, right. who it was the old Spice guy. Yeah. And <laughs> you've got the other guy, who I, whose name I ben? don't know. Ben. Uh, Jay Ryan. So Played who, by Jay Ryan. Who, who, <laughs> it's, it's just distracting when we have to credibly believe that Jessica Chastain is in, potentially in love with Jay Ryan, who's a person I've not seen before, and I have a movies podcast. And Isaiah Mustafa, who actually I thought is not bad in the film, who gives a pretty good performance. Right but does not have the same level of credibility that somebody like James McAvoy has. Kind of regardless of how you feel about James McAvoy, he's the star of Split. Yeah. And it's it's a little bit elementary to say these guys aren't as famous as these guys, but I couldn't get I couldn't get out of my head. Yeah, I think there is something to that, especially with the kind of weight that particularly um Jay Ryan's character Ben like had to carry in 
the arc, there's this kind of like love, light love triangle thing with him and, and Bill. And then there's, you know, I think a good symptom of what you're talking about is the moment, again, spoiler, towards the end of the film in the midst of that like interminable battle with Pennywise in the sewer where um, Ben like recites his poem that he wrote as a child. Your hair is like winter fire, embers, January embers, something. Shades of the red woman. Yeah. (laughs) And he's like, your hair is like winter (laughs) fire. And real laughter in the audience at the Arclight Dome and not, I think, what they were going for. And I think that is a symptom of the thing you're talking about. There's just not, it was hard to buy into a chemistry between these two characters. And I think that went all the way down to the casting. You know, like you couldn't buy them together. What is the King movie that you think got his tone the most right? Oh, well, it's not, a, I like Stand By Me is, is, is amazing. Um, so okay. Shawshank, like his his non horror short story stuff is for any of the Kingheads out there his best stuff, best best best. Like incredible characters, understands the importance of that one special summer to like kids. Like Stand by Me is an inc- is incredible so to good. read. Number two on my list, and Shawshank is incredible to read. I, I think those two are my favorites. And then it's like The Shining is amazing, not at all faithful to the book. Yep. Um, but gets the vibe and the metaphor of like madness of of like diving so hard into a thing and isolating yourself from your family that you, you lose it. Is there any of them that are supernatural that you think work? Because that is the thing that I have been thinking about a lot with it. Chapter two is mm. not. It's not just that you read a book when you're eleven and you can imagine the yeah. entire world and you can accept the mythical turtle and you can buy into Pennywise the dancing clown. It's that. This stuff is just really hard to translate. And the scariest movies often don't show you the thing. Yeah. And this is a movie that has to show you the thing over and over and over again. I think Carrie really nails it, but much easier. You know, De Palma, like, throwing fireballs, a really bracing story about coming of age and being an outsider, and just the acting is, like, off the charts by Sissy Spacek. and, And a really shock ending... I think that's the one that really nails it. And then the rest of them, well, you know, um, uh, The Mist is very good. Yeah, we talked about that last week. We love The Mist. The Mist is very, very good. Again, not really faithful to the King short story, which is in Monkey Shines, I believe. Yes. And opening story in Monkey Shines. That story is kind of like the end of it. Actually, the end is very similar in which the characters are kind of like going down the highway and they just see these massive creatures like roaming the landscape and no one knows what to do. Uh, the Mist movie is more of like a shock twist ending, which is a gut punch. Incredibly, it works really well. Yeah, but that one, so it would be Carrie, The Mist, Shawshank, and Stand By Me for me. These are all, those are all on my top five. Yeah. Those are the ones that work best for me. With the exception of The Mist, those movies are mostly not yes. deeply supernatural. Is there, a sto- is there a King story that you've always wanted to see oh, on yeah. screen that you've never seen? Allow me to pitch you now, Hollywood executives, Eyes of the Dragon. I don't know this one. Eyes of the Dragon, 1984 Stephen King fantasy novel. This is why I don't know it. In the kind of uh, stand universe, Randall Flagg is not explicitly the villain, 
but he there's enough detail in there that you're like, oh, it's him. And it's about a uh, character who it's set in this kind of like medieval fantasy world who gets accused of a crime and locked in a tower. And for years and years and years, very Shawshank, lots of Shawshank vibes. And he engineers a daring and incredible escape from that tower to bring down the people who uh, who cast him out. And it's a brisk read. It's 326 pages and it is like any king goes fast. So it goes really fast. And listen, fantasy is big right now. Turn this into a, a one or two season Netflix show. Get at me. It's it's very, I love it. It's very, very, very good. It's like shades of Rapunzel meets Shawshank. It's great. Okay. I love that recommendation. Yeah. If you're not already subscribed to Binge Mode, you got to do that right now. Star Wars yes. season coming soon. We won't yeah. put a date on it. Won't, won't put a date on it. If you were not soon. subscribed to the Ringer's YouTube channel and not watching NBA Desktop every week during the NBA season, you're a fucking moron. What, <laughs> else, what else do you have to pitch? Uh, NBA Desktop. Uh, let's see. Coming soon. That's it. That's that's really it, man. I'm deep in Star Wars research right now. Okay. Maybe we'll just have you watched, back to just talk watched, a little bit uh, of Star Wars soon. Just watched um, The Last Jedi, and it's good. I got to say, Adam Driver is good. That guy kicks ass. Listeners of this podcast know that The Last Jedi and Adam Driver are both very high on our list. Jason, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you to my trio of guests today. Of course, Amanda Dobbins on The Oscar Show, Jason Concepcion, and director Andy Muschietti. Please stay tuned to The Big Picture later this week. Amanda and I will be breaking down the career of one Jennifer Lopez. And then after that, we'll have a conversation with the director of the very exciting new movie, Hustlers, Lorene Scafaria. So stay tuned. 